right, well, good morning. I'm gonna give you a head start to your Bible passage for this morning from uh, the book of Haggai, chapter one, and then we're gonna blend over into chapter two just a bit. I say a head start because you gotta find a single page in most of your Bibles. So the easiest way to do it is to go to the New Testament, go to Matthew, and then just flip back a couple of books. This is the little letters tucked at the end of your Old Testament, so about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, don't be afraid at all to use the table of contents in the front. Find the page number uh, and turn to it. I still do that, and I've pastored for a couple of decades. Uh, so these uh, little books can be a struggle to find. Lord willing, uh, Trevor, the pastor at the Church at Greer Station, and I will be uh, up to see the Harrisons in two weeks in Halifax, and so I'm going to find my winter coat and uh, give some greetings from you all. So thanks for being a part of blessing and sending uh, folks like Bryce and Elizabeth uh, to do good work there. Uh, I had an opportunity this week to read uh, Eugene Peterson's biography, if that name's unfamiliar to you, as pastor, writer, uh, translator of the message, and wrote a number of other what I think are actually really better books uh, along the way, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, probably being the classic one of those. Near the end of the book, he, near the end of this uh, 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 biography of his life, uh, tells of trying to find a church in the late stages uh, after pastoring for several decades and then just wanting to, uh, to find a church to attend. And he said, uh, the quote was something like, I needed to find a place where once a week I could do nothing but attend to God without anybody standing in my way. And that's kind of what I hope this morning serves for you. Just an hour to attend to God, meaning to turn your attention God word, to think about him and to try at least as best as possible to war out the distractions that would cause us to not uh, do that. Kind of have this weekly rhythm on Sundays of doing that. We're also just want to point your attention because it's that time in uh, our lives, meaning the Rogers family life, where we're looking at calendar and thinking about how we're going to touch all the bases around the holidays. Uh, just to remind you that we're going to attend to God on Christmas Eve from five to six uh, here in this room, we'll have a Christmas Eve service. And uh, the focus of that, we do five to six to hopefully get you in and out before your family's Christmas tradition so you could still hit whatever dinner or thing you're gonna do uh, afterwards if you're, if you're in town. And the primary purpose is, uh, is to give you a space to invite uh, family, friends, neighbors, uh, that might not have somewhere to be on Christmas Eve, or maybe you just feel kind of awkward bringing up the God conversation around Christmas table with kind of uh, aunts and uncles and people that may not be believers. And so just being able to bring them to a place, hey, come go with us, and then we'll go have dinner together. Um, hopefully, we'll, we'll do our very best to not embarrass you and to turn attention Godward, all right, uh, to highlight the work of Jesus and to do that in a celebratory way that you would be proud to invite family or friends. So as you're planning, go ahead and uh, carve that space out five to six on Christmas Eve. I'm going to begin reading in Haggai 1, uh, chapter, uh, verse 12, and we're going to continue on uh, until verse 9 of chapter 2, kind of going to span uh, two statements made by the prophet here. This is a short three-week series. Brandon kicked it off Last week, I'm going to preach the kind of uh, uh, dinner meat in the middle of the bread, and then James Nugent, uh, one of the members of our congregation, is going to preach the last sermon on this last paragraph from Haggai chapter 2 uh, next week. So let's pick up, kind of get a running start, and then I'll move us back to give us some context uh, as we
we, as we get going if you weren't with us uh, last week. So verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, the high, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God in the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of the high priest Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began work on the house of the Lord, the armies, their God. And on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius, then into chapter 2. Then on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people in the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid, for the Lord of armies says this. What's more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Quite a repetitious passage, isn't it? A lot of repeated words and phrases and ideas. And couched within it is kind of an answer to one big question. And oddly enough, tucked in Haggai, it's a question that we all ask and really need an answer to. It's a simple question. Where, where is God when we blow it? Where, where is God when we just make a mess of things? What does God do? How does he respond in those places? To get at answering this question, I want to kind of outline this passage with four simple questions. First, what have the people done? Secondly, what are the people currently doing? Thirdly, what, what is God doing in their midst? Where is God? And then fourth, what then should the people do as a response to what God is doing? And then kind of parenthetically, then what should, should we do? What's the point of application for this morning's text? So what have the people done? If you notice here, I put in parentheses actually the passage from last week, because this is kind of the backward-facing context that gives this morning's passage any sense of substance for us to latch on to. The people have blown it. The context is, is quite clear. If you weren't with us last week, just to familiarize ourselves with where we are in the story of Scripture, at this point, we're roughly 550 years before the birth of Jesus. This point, the people of God have been led to the land, and uh, because they've taken the name of God in vain, 
mocked him in the land. God's enacted his promises that they're going to be judged and kicked off the land, 586, 587 B.C., so 587 years before Jesus. The Babylonians come, kind of last wave of destruction. They wipe out the temple, and they take the people of God into captivity. Shortly thereafter, God raises up some leaders among the people in captivity that allows a small remnant to come back to the land and start the work of rebuilding, rebuilding the temple. They do this under Ezra, who's kind of the spiritual leader of the day, and Nehemiah, who's like the governmental leader of the day. So Nehemiah leads the people back in. Ezra comes as like the spiritual high priest that's coming back to lead them into the land. And they come with just a small minority group of people, come back and begin work of rebuilding. As Brandon pointed out last week, start well, they get back, the temple's in ruins, they start to rebuild, they get the foundation laid, and then they they make a mess of it. They neglect God's blessing. And this is why we've placed this series around Thanksgiving, because it's the big question of the book. What do we do with God's blessing? God's blessed the people to allow them to return to the land. And instead of leveraging that blessing to promote the glory of God by building the temple, they've spent immense energy building their own paneled houses. And so in the passage that Brandon considered last week, God is trying to get their attention. And the way that he does this first is he allows everything that they do to overpromise and underdeliver. So they eat, but they don't get full. They drink, but they're not satisfied. They earn money, but they put it in a purse and it's got holes in the bottom. And verses 1 through 11 are as if God's kind of standing in the corner waving his hand saying, want to know why that's happening? Because you're neglecting me and pursuing your own stuff. But as is often the case with us, we don't get uh, awakened by the bad aftertaste of letdown pleasures. And so God raises up some voices, like Haggai, to say, let me tell you what's happening. Let me kind of interpret it for you so you don't miss it. Because the temptation in our lives as of their time is just to double down on what's not working. Earning, putting in a purse with holes, and I'm just going to patch up the holes and try harder. And God says, don't do that. Instead, what I want you to do is I want you to step back, and the title of this series and uh, the focus of verse 1 through 11 was, I want you to step back and consider your ways. This is the proverbial axe-sharpening illustration. Don't just try to whack harder, but step back and sharpen the axe. Step back and say, what's going on about my ways that's causing this outcome? And so Haggai says, consider your ways. God's the one that's brought this upon you. So idea number two, what did the people do in response? Well, verses 12 and 14 give us an answer to that question in chapter 1. We get this repeated refrain. You notice it as I was reading. You get Zerubbabel's name mentioned, governmental leader at the time. You get Joshua, high priestly leader. So we've got, again, kind of Ezra Nehemiah picture here. Governmental leader, spiritual leader, and then all the remnant of the people. So he's touching all the bases. What do those people do? Three things. First, they listen. They listen. God is gracious to send them a voice. 
to call out to them to get their attention, particularly when the state of their lives is not in keeping with God's purposes. And as a gracious demonstration of God's providence in this passage, the people actually have ears to hear. They respond to that. They hear the words of God's appointed voice. It's not the same, but it's similar to what we hope happens here on Sunday mornings, that God, through his word, speaks to his people. They have ears to hear, and they listen. Secondly, they fear. See that in verse 12 of chapter 1. So the people fear, and then notice the attribution there of the fear. They fear the Lord. This is really good. They're not fearing their situation. They're not fearing their pain. But they're fearing the, the Lord. And this would make sense, right? The one who can withhold food and blessing, the one who can kind of have his hand raised in the corner to say, I'm the one that's causing all that mess. I mean, clearly you'd, you'd want to fear the one that has that level of control. And then they work. Look in verse 14. The Lord roused the spirit. That's interesting. If you were to kind of take this, these paragraphs and just kind of suck out all the repeated refrains of Zerubbabel and uh, Jehozadak and the remnant of the people, you're going to be left with some of these kind of nuggets of action. And one of the nuggets of action here, kind of the, the, the outcome of listening and fearing, is that their spirit gets roused to do something. They, they act used this illustration before, but it works here as well. This is the classic couch to 5K scenario. The doctor says, hey, you're in trouble. If you don't change the patterns about your, of your life, it's going to get cut short. And so you fear, that's not good. I don't want my life to end. And so you act couch to 5K style. It rouses your spirit. It produces some motivation that you otherwise lacked. After 18 years at this point of inadequate work, the people now seem to be getting after it. Their spirit is roused from the government leader to the high priest to the entire remnant, which poses the question, which leads to the question, the third, what would, what would cause this kind of movement in people? What would make people who seemingly haven't listened, haven't feared, certainly haven't worked, get busy after 18 years? And I think the answer to that question is the same answer to the question that I ask as point three, which is where is God? Or more specifically, what is God doing that would produce this type of activity among the people. There's a key phrase in this entire section. It shows up in verse 13, and then we've got a, about six weeks probably gap between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. I'll mention why I think that's the case. But it shows up again in verse 4 of chapter 2. And it is, look, look with me there, in verse 13. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. And it's a really simple message. I'm, I'm with you. 
And then again, look in verse 4. Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people in the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, why? For I am with you. One of the ways that I often try to read the Bible, makes the Bible pop for me, is to think what else could have been said there? Like, what else could God have said there? I mean, he clearly could have said, I am against you. You've made a mess of this. I kicked you off the land. I gave you blessing to come back, and you're still 18 years of blowing it. I'm going to prove that you're not going to get your way by opposing you. Or he could have said, I am waiting. You guys really haven't had your act together consistently, so let me just play my cards behind my back a little bit and see if you actually do it this time. Let's see if you get it right. Or he could have said, and this is close to what he does say, he could have said something like, I am for you, meaning I'll cheer you on from the cheap seats. I'll watch, I'll encourage, I'll celebrate your victories. It's not what he says. He says, I am with you. I'm in it with you right now as you are just beginning to apply yourself to the work. You haven't proven anything at this point. Now, this seems to be a big phrase in this, uh, these two paragraphs. And it's a big phrase not merely because it's the big phrase of these two paragraphs, but I think you could rightly make the case that from Genesis 3 forward, this is a thesis statement of the entire Bible. It's a summary of the entire story of Scripture. God saying, I'm with sinners. In fact, I just did a study of that phrase this week, thinking, where else does that show up? And interestingly, it shows up all the time in the prophet's writing. I've captured just a few of them for you this morning, particularly in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Consider the Lord's declaration here, Isaiah 41. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or Isaiah 43, 5. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. We're starting back in Jeremiah chapter 1. Do not be afraid of them, this being the opposing nations, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. A bit later in verse 19 of chapter 1. They'll fight against you. They're not going to overcome you. Why? I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 15, 20. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. Why? Because I'm with you to rescue you and to save you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 30, 11. I am with you. To save you, declares the Lord. 
Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Jeremiah 42, 11. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you, and I will save you and deliver you from all his hands. Or lastly, Jeremiah 46, 28. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. This language is perhaps the great preposition of the Bible. The withness of God. God is with us. Think for a moment about why this message would be so important to this people. The very activity to which they are being called gives us a hint. The temple was the Old Testament symbol of the witness of God with his people. It marked them as being the people among whom God dwelt uniquely. He was with them. Do you even remember back pre-temple, even in their traveling, the demonstration of the withness of God in a cloud and fire, a tangible symbol that God was with this people. But now that's all gone. And the people were to blame. It was their sin that got them there. The broken down temple was a picture of their spiritual condition, and they were right to wonder... Has God bailed on us forever? In fact, we'll get a hint of the stunning condition of this in chapter 2, verse 3. One of the reasons I think there's this repeat mention, chapter 1 ending, chapter 2 picking up, say six weeks or so later. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing by comparison. The people look around, and even their work seems silly. It's a prototypical picture of the sandcastle that you spent hours building that gets washed away in one fail high tide, and you start to build again, and it just doesn't add up. What's the use? Why does it matter? Even what I do will never come to anything. It could just be blown over in a moment. And in the midst of that sandcastle rebuilding, God says, I want you to hear one thing, and that is, I am with you. The question then is, have you ever been there? Where you've blown it? Maybe it's not 18 years, maybe it's 18 minutes. You begin to doubt, does God still love me? You wonder if he might have just thrown in the towel and moved on. You feel guilt and shame because you know that the mess that you are experiencing is at least in part of your own doing. And if you're really honest, it would make sense for God to give up on You might look at your current spiritual condition and think, this is nothing 
by comparison to what it should be. God's message through the prophet is good news for all of us who are there, who have been there, or will be there one day again. God is with sinners, and that includes you. This is perhaps one of the best reasons that marriage is a great illustration of this. There's no way to anticipate the twists and turns that marriage brings. And yet, the covenantal commitment to say, come what may, I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. I don't have all the answers. Perhaps this isn't the path I would have chosen. But we're going to walk this out together. And in fact, you see the quality of the love not by what happens when things are going well, but how people respond when the other party blows it. And so, we see something of the condition of God's love for his people, his covenant faithfulness to his people, including you and I, and saying, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. And this witness of God here is attached to a future promise. Look at the end of those verses that I read in 7, 8, and 9. Though it seems that the temple is going to be ruined forever, there's a time coming when God is going to shake the nations, when he's going to restore the glory of the temple. And you're reading and you're like, man, Matt, we're, we're like real near the end of the Old Testament here. And unless I miss something in my Sunday school lessons, I don't remember this temple ever getting rebuilt to a point that exceeds Solomon's glory. You're exactly right. There's a greater glory coming to a greater temple that God will use to shake the nations and save his people, which is no wonder when we turn to Matthew 1 and we get introduced to the one who we're going to celebrate pretty soon. We get introduced, well, that we celebrate all the time, but we're going to celebrate his unique birth here pretty soon, right? In Matthew 1, how does the gospel author introduce Jesus? He is, verse 23, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Jesus is God with sinners. Barring language from Isaiah 7 of a future day when God would be fully with his people, not in a physical building that they would build with stones and uh, uh, fashion with their hands, but in the Son whom he would send. And those who believe in faith and the salvation offered through this promised one, the promised withness of God continues. How does the Great Commission commandment, I'm sorry, Great Commission text end in Matthew 28? Considered this a, a few weeks ago. Lo, I am what? With you always, even to the end of the age. God's witness comes in the form of Christ. And then through the sending of the Spirit, God is with his people forever. And it's one of the reasons that the eternal home in the book of Revelation is pictured as a temple. God dwelling with his people, free from sin forever. Jesus proves 
that God does not bail on us when we blow it. So then, what should the people do? Parenthetically, what should you do? What should I do? I want you to focus your attention on chapter 2, verse 4. The so what of this morning's sermon. I really like it when the so what's are super clear in the biblical text. The so what is found very clearly in chapter 2, verse 4. The biblical author doesn't have bold-faced font or silly emojis to make his point here, but he draws tools, he uses tools to draw our attention to the main theme. And it is the holy, holy, holy of Haggai. What do you see three times in 2, 4? Said to the government leader, said to uh, the high priest leader, and said to the remnant of the people, be strong. What do you do if God is with you? You be strong. Show strength. And as you read those words, you're like, oh, man. So I've done my Bible reading plan through the years. Uh, there's been times when I've kind of stumbled upon some texts that sound eerily familiar to that same type of command. Remember back, this one gets preached at a lot of youth rallies through the years. You probably heard it. Remember back in Joshua 1? To another people who've just blown it. People on the brink of taking the land. What's said there? Be strong and courageous. For you will distribute the land I swore to the ancestors to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction that my servant Moses commanded you. Don't turn from the right or to the left so that you'll have success wherever you go. The book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You'll meditate on it day and night so that you will carefully observe everything that's written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Hey, we're getting ready to take the land. God is with us. What do we do? Be strong and courageous. But we blew it. We didn't do that. We didn't drive out the nations. We've worshipped the Baals. We've had kings like David, the figurehead leader who's blown it. So what do we do? First Chronicles 28, 20. David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and have good courage and work. Fear not and be not dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not fail or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. What's this on the brink of? This is on the brink of building the temple the first time. So they take the land. I'm with you. Be strong and courageous. Blow it. Temple, establish it. Strong and courageous. Blow it. Now you come back. I'm with you. Be strong and courageous. And you know how this story's going to play. It's not going to go well. But the application still stands. And it stands even more for us on the other side of Jesus, who understand the witness of God in a profoundly different way than the people in the era of the temple were able to appreciate. So, 
How does that then land on us? Very quickly. Three points of application. Two that are baked into the passage, and one that I think is a clear implication of the passage. The two that are baked into the text. First, find strength in God's presence in the midst of your pain. God is near with the brokenhearted, both those brokenhearted by their own sin and those broken by suffering around them. Be hesitant to look for solutions that press you beyond worship, the presence of God with you in the midst of this broken world. We're a people who run to manufactured solutions to get us out of our place of pain and brokenness. And I think the text presses on us this morning. Do you find joy in the fact that God is with a sinner like you? That he hasn't given up on you yet? Find strength in God's witness in whatever you're going through this morning. Secondly, Find strength to invest in the work. Find strength to invest in the work. If God is with us, verse uh, 4 of chapter 2, there's one word sentence there, work, exclamation mark. If he's with you, then don't get crushed and crippled, but get after something. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, that Brandon preached last week. Go up to the hills, bring some wood, and build the house. I might take pleasure in it so that I may appear in my glory, says the Lord. It's not like the people don't know the things that they should be doing. And remember here, the temple, it is the point, but it's not. The temple is just a picture of the glory of God. So, so God's saying here in doing the work, invest in things that are going to promote the greatness of God. Okay. So how do you avoid caving in on yourself? You find strength in the presence of God in the midst of your pain, and then you give yourself to work that promotes the greatness of God in this world. Whatever your hills and wood and building the house looks like, Invest your life in ways that are going to demonstrate God's greatness around you. And then lastly, find strength, and this is the one that's not baked into the text, but I think it's a clear implication of the passage. Find strength to model God's character in your human relationships. I used marriage as an illustration a moment ago. I think it extends even beyond that. One of the ways that we experience the witness of God is through human relationships that demonstrate that type of commitment. How you respond to people who blow it gives an indication of the nature of your heart and worship to how God has responded to you when you blow it. This applies in marriage, this applies in parenting, this applies in our small group relationships, people in our community. If you are quick to write people off, when they let you down, allow the text this morning to demonstrate and hold up to you a God who doesn't give up on you and your consistent waywardness. And double your efforts to demonstrating faithful, consistent witness. 
people that are around you. And this is one of the reasons that I think local church commitment is such a big deal. It's one of the reasons that I think changing churches every two to three years is a really uh, dangerous thing. Um, I think you got to have some people that you're anchored with, that you can dim- that you can fight and reconcile, square back up with, pray, cry, that you can do all that with. And you just simply can't do it if you're plopping in new relationships all the time. So lean in with some people and model the faithful character of God in those relationships. This morning, as we close with a moment of reflection, I uh, want you to have wash over you this idea of God being with you, uh, whatever you limped in with this morning. Uh, the end of our services, we don't always do a great job of saying this, but we've started a habit of having some pastors and wives in the back of the room. Um, and that's there just if you want somebody to pray with you. You know, if there's something that you feel, man, I'm limping with this, I can't get over this, or we've got this real pressing thing on our family, we'd just like somebody to pray with us or for us. Should you use that at any time during the closing songs to go pray uh, with some people? We'd love that opportunity. Uh, if you're here with small group community, you can lean over to somebody that's around you and talk to them as well. But we want this to be a time of reflection. Remember, couch to 5K style. Listen, fear, and then have a roused spirit that says, there's something I should, should be doing. Okay, let's pray together, and then we'll conclude with some songs. God, we thank you that you have not given up on us. We can pause and consider our ways and think of countless uh, episodes, e- even in this week, uh, that would cause you to justly push away from relationship with us, um, to give up, to throw in the towel, to, to move on. And yet your persistent witness gives us hope. It gives us hope to remember that you are attentive to us. You are attentive to our needs, not, not waiting and watching and seeing if we're going to prove ourselves to be faithful this time, but you are with us right, right in the midst of our mess. And you've specifically demonstrated that in a far richer way than the remnant in Haggai's day would ever experience. You've demonstrated in the sending of Christ. You've shown your witness. And for that, we give you praise. We thank you that because of Jesus, we can have hope when we blow it, that you are not finished with us and that you are doing something even now with our flimsy sandcastles to put this world back together, to restore a perfect temple, a heavenly dwelling, where we will worship you forever free from sin. So, God, would you rouse our spirit for the work? Would you make us effective for promoting your greatness? And would you allow us to demonstrate that in the ways that we love and serve and demonstrate witness in the human relationships that are around us? Now, as we stand and sing, we ask that you would stir us 
that we would leave having attended to you this morning and that we would obey as a result. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing this morning.